0: Hello and welcome to the Of Interest podcast. I'm Gareth Vaughan from Interest.co.nz. My guest for this episode is David McLeish. He's Head of Fixed Income at Fisher Funds Management. David's here to put the Reserve Bank's inflation-fighting strategy under the spotlight. We're going to poke and prod it a bit and question whether it's the most appropriate approach in the current environment. Um, Hi, David, and welcome to the Of Interest podcast. I thought perhaps we could just kick off with you telling listeners a little bit about Uh, what you do at Fisher Funds and a little bit about your background for a bit of context. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me,
1: Gareth. Uh, So I've been investing for about 25 years uh, prior to joining Fisher Funds, which was uh, I've been with them for about 11 years now. Uh, I was uh, overseas for about a decade or so in both London and New York, investing and trading for a number of the large investment banks around the world companies like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley and UPS. Um, And as I say, moved back uh, about 11 years ago and and set up the fixed income division at Fisher Funds. Uh, Prior to that, we were exclusively investing in equities. Um, And since then we've we've obviously grown the business and and in particular our KiwiSaver business uh, and are now the um, second largest uh, wealth manager in the country.
0: Great. Well, look, you, doubtless, you're watching the Reserve Bank and other central banks very closely all the time. Um, So you're you're a perfect person for us to chat to about this. Look, you know, the Reserve Bank last week, of course, increased the official cash rate or the OCR by a record 75 basis points. Um, This is against the backdrop, of course, of inflation of over 7%, the highest it's been in, in more than 30 years Um, And the Reserve Bank has now increased the OCR by 400 basis points in just 13 months to 4.25%. It's forecasting the OCR peaking at 5.5% in the middle of next year, um, meaning there's another 125 basis points of increases to go in in about six months, and they're not meeting for three. So, so look, I mean, borrowers, obviously, be they households or businesses, are, are facing higher interest rates. Um, you know, two-year mortgage rates, for example, uh, from the major banks are closing in on 7%, up from an average of about 2.5% in July last year. Um, and Governor Adrian Orr has acknowledged the Reserve Bank is deliberately trying to engineer a recession, which will push unemployment up from its, its low position now, 3.3% or about 97,000 people. So we've got a lot of context here. So look, let's. I thought it'd be good to start at the beginning, what, in your view, are the key causes of the current high inflationary environment?
1: Yeah, that's a, that is a great question because it's always a mixture of things. Um, and when I say things, we typically break them down into two major parts of the market or the economy more broadly, and that's demand and supply. And um, as I'm sure we'll get to at some point, uh, monetary policy is largely focused on dealing with the demand side of the equation, so either increasing or decreasing demand depending on if it's over or under shooting. And um, you know, therein lies some of the problem. But uh, certainly from a current inflationary perspective, we would assign at least 50, if not close to 75% of all the inflation that we've got in New Zealand, as you point out, over 7%, is largely coming from the supply side of the equation. So that was... All of the well-known supply chain bottlenecks, maybe um, lack of, um, of 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 labour market participants due to the pandemic itself or other um, uh, medical-related issues. Um, certainly, the involvement of um, of of government programs to help people stay gainfully employed. All of these things that were kind of and have been occurring for the best part of. Two years now um, have played, and I think still are playing quite a considerable role in the current inflation that we see today. Bearing in mind, remember, inflation that we see today is the inflation over the last year, so it's a backward-looking uh, indicator for for prices and and uh, for of goods and services in the economy.
0: So that's that's a really interesting answer. So if we're, we're looking at monetary policy targeting demand, and we have a supply issue. Um, then I guess it begs the question, which I was going to get to a bit later, but mm. I mean, is monetary policy the, the, the right tool to be, to be using at the moment?
1: Well, monetary policy, um, you know, central banks, including our own Reserve Bank of New Zealand, have uh, a real challenge at all times, not just in a really unprecedented time like the one that we've just had over the last couple of years. And that's largely because they are setting short-term, in most cases, interest rates Based on past economic outcomes, with a view that those policies will have an impact in 6, 12, 18 months' time. That disconnect is extremely difficult to to manage um, and to get right. Uh, And unfortunately, you know, there are times that they don't get it right. Um, So that's kind of the backdrop for the fact that this is. And always is a very difficult business setting interest rates for an economy. Um, specifically today, is it the right thing to be doing? Well, we do know, as I said, fifty to twenty-five percent is therefore demand-side dre- uh, led uh, inflation, and because of that, therefore uh, there is a there is an argument to say that interest rates certainly needed to be higher than what they were coming out of the pandemic. Um, we've well and truly got that, as you just uh, mentioned, as far as the interest rate rises that we've, we've now had. Um, but from here, what I would say is that even by the Reserve Bank's own admission, we are at an interest rate that is well above the neutral rate, i.e. sort of the long-term average that they would expect it to be. Uh, and therefore, it's very restrictive on the economy, um, contractionary, if you will. Uh, and they're also then going about saying, OK, we know that and expect a recession, The issue that I've got then is that there hasn't been a lot of discussion around the things that they don't have control of, which is that supply side of the equation. And when you look at the supply side of the equation, I actually see lots of reason to be quite optimistic around the alleviation of those inflationary pressures, be it a reduction in congestion around the major shipping uh, lines in in the world, Um, be it a reduction in food prices in other parts of the world, Uh, be it the fact that house prices have started to come down from, you know, um, monumental levels and that that typically leads inflation in areas like housing and utility bills so there's lots of reasons I think that um, you know you could already point to to say that uh, monetary policy is, is has done its job um, but the, the the parts of the market or the parts of the inflationary picture that are um, not in need of monetary policy intervention are already starting to correct themselves as well
0: okay so let's Look then at what the RBNZ has done and is doing um, a little bit more. So, with their monetary policy tools, so obviously the OCR being the key one, um, have they gone too far too fast with that?
1: Only time will tell. Um, I don't have a crystal ball, they don't have a crystal ball. Um, You know, certainly as you mentioned, going at 75 basis points clips and raising the official cash rate is really, again, unprecedented. Um, I wrote an article not that long ago that uh, suggested that going at 50 basis point clips was probably a little bit too much. So I think you already know my answer then uh, in that regard. But in saying that, um, you know, inflation has remained more persistently high than I would have expected it to, and certainly the Reserve Bank as well. So I'll put my hand up and say that I expected... That rate of inflation to, to already be more meaningfully downward um, than, than what it currently is. So I've kind of been wrong um, for, for a bit of time, but certainly as we get to the levels of interest rates that we're now at, even looking historically speaking, when the economy was much less indebted than it now is, these levels of interest rates were very contractionary on economic activity and disinflationary on, on inflation, so therefore I would argue that um, we are set for a slowdown um, that may create an outcome that they're not comfortable with, i.e. undershooting on inflation and actually undershooting on economic growth and seeing a much larger rise in unemployment.
0: Wow, Okay. (laughs) One thing I'm really curious about is that, obviously, the Reserve Bank did their last OCR review for the year last week. They don't have another one for three months. So I think it's February the 22nd is the next one. Um, Now, you know, if we look at some other central banks, so, for example, the Reserve Bank of Australia, they meet, you know, first Tuesday of every month. They've got one more for the year coming up next week. They've been increasing um, their cash rate by 25 basis points of late. I believe they're expected to do that again next week. To what extent do you think the Reserve Bank going so hard with that 75 basis point increase is down to the fact that they are not scheduled to meet again for three months and they can now sit back over summer and try and look for some of the answers they want to see when they come back and perhaps uh, reduce their hawkish outlook a bit in February?
1: I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, the hiatus is uh, very noticeable compared to other central banks. Uh, certainly the Reserve Bank of Australia, the Federal Reserve meets twice before again the Reserve Bank does uh, uh, next time. And so I do think they want to get some runs on the board. Um, and I think that was somewhat fair to do so because, um, again, the actual inflationary print is a lot higher than what they would want it to be. And so doing um, what they did now does give them, uh, you know, a little bit more comfort that they may be able to sit on the beach and actually enjoy the the holiday break um, without having this nagging feeling in the back of their minds that have they done enough? And I think that's where their current mindset is, is ensuring they do enough to get inflation down, um, again, with the view that they believe that monetary policy can control inflation. Um, so yes, the short answer is I do think there was a, there was a lot um, to do with the fact that they're not going to uh, meet again until the 22nd of February.
0: You kind of have implied that you think maybe they've done too much.
1: So the, there's a few points to that. Again, only time will tell, but a key part of monetary policy setting is what you say as well as what you do. And in many cases, you have to back up what you say with what you do. Um, But when you are saying what you're doing, i.e. increasing interest rates at such a great rate, uh, you've got to also talk the talk. And that's what they did again at the last monetary policy statement uh, meeting, uh, which is that expect more. We're not done yet. And so therefore, financial markets, which are typically forward-looking, then don't infer that there's a softening in that, that, that mindset and then don't price into future l- levels of interest rates um, a softening in that stance, which again means that then the full uh, impetus of the monetary policy actions that they're taking today are truly felt. They're not, they're not uh, dwindled away or diluted in any way. Uh, so I think there is a uh, talk tough uh, versus potentially then hoping that they can underdeliver deliver in the future and that that won't be a bad thing from their perspective. And, um, and what does underdelivering look like? Well, maybe it does look like not increasing at 75 basis points in February, um, maybe doing 50, maybe even doing 25, because certainly other central banks around the world have already taken that cue from slower economic growth and a reduction in inflation in many parts of the world and have already talked to the market and said, expect A lower pace of hikes going forward.
0: If we stick with monetary policy for a bit longer and then we'll look at some other aspects to all this. Um, Obviously, the the Reserve Bank does have what are known as alternative monetary policy tools available to it. So we've seen a couple of these in use um, during the COVID period. We saw quantitative easing come to New Zealand for the first time. So the the large scale asset purchasing uh, program through which the Reserve Bank bought, I think, $53.5 billion worth of government and local government bonds in the secondary market off banks. We've seen the funding for lending programs through which they lend money to banks at the OCR um, rate. Um, and it's, it's interesting looking through this uh, memorandum of understanding I have here that was um, put out by the Minister of Finance and the Reserve Bank in 2020. It's very much all about alternative monetary policy tools for when interest rates are really low and inflation is really low, as was the case then. We now have the opposite problem, of course, just just two years down the track or two and a half years down the track. I'm just wondering, I mean, are there any alternative monetary policy tools that central banks can use when times are as they are now?
1: Well, certainly those policies in reverse is the first one. Uh, That's the first port of call, and we're already starting to see that. So we've gone from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening. We've gone from lower official cash rates to higher official cash rates. And um, although there isn't really the the opposite or the reverse of the Funding for Lending program, um, the simple fact that raising interest rates, the the overnight cash rate, the official cash rate, um, does much of that work. And so, I think the natural inclination is that they launched a whole new set of products then in 2020 to try and, again, stimulate the economy in different ways through different tools. Um, And so taking them away and putting them into reverse is by far and away the first and and most obvious step to take, uh, largely because not necessarily that they're proven, but um, they've kind of already been introduced. And so it's not too much of a shock to then put them into reverse. Um, Is there other things to do? Well, you know, never say never, and um, central banks are very imaginative people um, or or institutions in the sense that uh, we do get these new instruments on a pretty regular basis. As I said, I've been doing this 25 years, and my goodness, I, 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 I certainly couldn't count the number of different iterations and different variations that have kind of occurred in monetary policy setting. And uh, those tools are, are always up for debate. And I wouldn't be surprised, um, you know, if we if we do see some new ones in the future. As to the most obvious ones going forward, well, again, we've got to be very careful that um, we don't look at monetary policy in isolation. And, you know, fiscal policy, for example, is obviously another, uh, another key part of the equation, which we obviously haven't touched on. But, um, again, I, I do suspect that because that memorandum of understanding was uh, um, an agreement in conjunction with the government, um, the government again will play a very key role going forward.
0: Yeah and we will come to fiscal policy but just before we do there has been some talk recently about the inflation target the 1 to 1% to 3% with a tar- focus on the 2% midpoint and I mean interestingly a few years back when inflation was weak there was some talk of whether that 2% midpoint should be reduced now there's some talk of whether that should be increased what's your take on, on that? Um So th-
1: my take would be that this is uh, a very um, uh, it, it's a very difficult balancing act. and um, moving away from what is meant to be a very long-term target does create some quite uh, different mindset shifts in the sense that um, if you were to accept a higher level of inflation as a central bank, then, You're almost indirectly implying that um, you're not serious about getting back to the levels of inflation that you were. And so, therefore, people should expect a higher level of inflation. Well, what does that do? Change people's expectations around what the level of inflation is? Well, then you're probably going to put upward pressure on inflation, right? Uh, And so, by doing that, that could be uh, a bit of a self fulfilling prophecy and certainly work against what they're trying to achieve right now. Um, I would argue that if you really do believe that inflation expectations set inflation, um, and that was, again, really the um, the whole impetus behind that article that I mentioned earlier, um, is that if you do really believe inflation expectations set inflation, then why wouldn't you reduce your target inflation level or start talking about targeting the lower end of the band? Um, that, for me, actually feels like the more logical, rational response from central banks now, rather than actually a softening of it.
0: Inflation expectations, that is a very interesting topic. And I, 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 I did find that, that article you referred to very interesting. So, you know, there is very much a focus on inflation expectations ingrained in, in, in what the Reserve Bank does, should there be?
1: Uh, latest academic research is mixed at best. In fact, the Federal Reserve themselves are so the biggest central bank in the world, the Federal Reserve of the United States. Um, one of their senior advisors wrote a 27-page article or, or white paper on exactly this topic just last year. And uh, they found in their research that, in fact, inflation expectations have very little impact, if any, on inflation outcomes. And that, to me, makes a lot of sense, actually. If just think about it rationally, um, you know, do, do, do households... Um, decide uh, the level of inflation through um, the price that they pay for goods and services um, by what they expect inflation to be in the future? Or do they just change their habits depending on what they've just seen in the past? It feels much more like, and you think about wages as well. That would, be the, that would be another really key one, is that I don't think employers are setting wage levels off what they think inflation is going to be in a year's time. They're looking backwards. They're like, what was... You know, what, what was the cost of living? How hard is it for me to find labour now? Not what it's going to be in the future, because you can't, you can't gauge that. So it feels rational to, to think that actually inflation expectations follow follow outcomes rather than lead them. So, no, I don't necessarily agree with it. And I think just my own, you know, throughout time, just being both an employer and a consumer, um, that's, that seems rational in, in my mindset.
0: I did um, pose this question in the previous podcast episode when I interviewed um, Reserve Bank Assistant Governor Karen Silk and one of the points she made that be quite interesting to get your take on was she said one of the key focuses for the Reserve Bank on this is looking at what businesses are seeing and what businesses intentions are in terms of passing on increasing costs that they could be experiencing. Um, what about that aspect of it?
1: Yeah, for sure. So there's lots of elements to that. The first one would be uh, the offshore element, i.e. Um, the, the resources in particular, mainly the goods, that um, uh, a lot of producers here in New Zealand have to bring into the country to be able to produce their final good. Um, and again, a lot of those offshore goods... Um, are actually starting to see some disinflationary effects come through from things like alleviations in, in supply chains and, and factory production levels, uh, and even a, an alleviation in the labour market in some areas to, you know, early, early days with that one. So, I would argue that there's actually an offshore element to that and that's actually a really positive one. Um, the onshore element to that is then really comes down to margins and your ability to be able to price, uh, be able to push on those prices. And there is a very clear reaction function from then how much consumers will want to accept those price rises. So it becomes very, very um, uh, multivariable and quite nuanced. And that really does become very nuanced between different products, different industries, different sectors. Um, so I don't think you can actually use such a broad, overarching kind of view that, that that's, that, that's a, a valid argument. Um, but even if you do, I actually think that a big considerable part of the, the inflation picture, uh, which is the offshore one, is actually improving.
0: Let's move on to fiscal policy. So we're talking here about the use of government spending and taxation to influence the economy. We obviously saw a lot of that in 2020. So we saw a key example that I always think of is the the wage subsidy scheme. Um, Obviously, when COVID first hit and we had lockdowns, um, what could or should fiscal policy be doing in this environment we're in now?
1: So yeah, maybe taking a little bit of a step back on on what they did through 2020 and 2021 was um, there's there's quite a lot of research out there that suggests uh, there is quite different impacts on economic activity in particular, and that's first and foremost from different types of government spending, um, be it government investment. Be it transfer payments, uh, be it cuts in taxes, for example, or changes in the tax rate, um, and they do all have quite varying degrees of impact on on the economy. We, along with most parts of the developed world, experienced and uh, quite a considerable uptick in transfer payments. So that was um, ways of um, of of helping people through a very very different difficult period, and largely that came through the employers who were incentivised strongly to retain staff and stop the unemployment rate from rising rapidly. Um, those are what we would call transfer payments. Um, they have a really large short-term impact, at least historically speaking On the, in the research that I've read, have a very large but very short-term impact on economic activity, which means demand, right? Um, so that essentially gives people the confidence to keep spending. And that was largely, I think, the purpose, right? I think the the government wouldn't hide from that fact. Um, The problem being is that that economic research suggests that there's a large payback in that um, the government then has to get its finances in order from shelling out all of this money, that over time, essentially through the ways of of getting that money back through the other avenues um, of reducing government spending, that has a, a negative multiplier effect. So you actually have less economic growth over a three plus year time period. Why is that important? Well, we've just gone through that first two or three year time period. Right? whereby we've seen the most amount of impact, impetus from that fiscal spending, that type of fiscal spending, I think there's payback ahead is what I'm saying. Um, so what does the government do from here? Well, the government's going to have to keep a really close eye on that because um, I'm a big proponent of much more longer-term government spending in the investment um, space. So helping areas like research and development and improvement in technologies and better ways of working, improving our productivity, uh, which is diabolical.
0: OK, so in that case, um, y- you're not advocating that they completely rein in government spending or look to slash and burn it, but you're talking about spending it in areas that are going to help, I guess, over the long term. Um, so you're talking about productivity. That's a, a big issue for New Zealand, has been a long time Um and um, you're talking about research and development. I mean, we often talk about how we have an in- infrastructure deficit in New Zealand as well. Um, so there's lots of things they could do there. Um, we also have a three-year electoral cycle, which is pretty short by international standards. So, you know, what, I guess, would you would you like to see? I mean, 2023 is an election year. What would you like to see the, the politicians saying on fiscal policy?
1: Yeah, and I think, uh, well, you know, I would hope that uh, politicians from both sides of the fence could agree on this, that again, you have to invest for the long term to get long term benefits. Um, And you're right, our election cycle doesn't help with that. But you would hope that you would get some form of consensus on the right types of long term investment that the country requires. Um, I don't think it's particularly contentious those big top levels um, of research and development, or technology, or forms of different forms of infrastructure, um, being key areas that we are deficient in and could really improve the long-term growth prospects of New Zealand. Um, it's how that's then spent into the nitty-gritty, where I'm sure there's a lot of uh, disagreement. I, I just hope that again, whichever government is in power, um, would be able to again. Um, employ the, that capital in broadly the right area to help improve the long-term economic growth outlook for New Zealand. Um, so, yeah, no, I'm, not, I'm not particularly concerned on the, on, the, on the political side as to which one's better at making those long-term investment decisions. I think we're all somewhat aligned on that.
0: We've also seen um, some support from the government um, in this high inflation period, and I'm thinking primarily there of, of reducing petrol tax um, which they've done. Um, we've, we've seen also, I mean, in, in Europe, obviously, which has been really hard hit um, with by, by high energy prices following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The German government looking to cap um, energy prices, which you know, most economists don't like that type of approach. Um, but I guess, um, I guess, what I'm getting coming to here is, um, in terms of fiscal policy, this type of assistance is this the right thing for them to be doing? I guess helping out we traditionally we think that poorer people are harder hit by um, increases in things like petrol and food prices because more of their income is spent on it and the government should be looking to help those people so is that the right approach there and are there other ways the government could be maybe thinking outside the square in terms of what they could be doing at the moment
1: so to answer the first question around is uh, a fuel tax decrease the right tool or was it the right tool um, Again, only time will tell. But what I would say is that um, those types of changes um, are large. Well, should I think largely be short term focused? Um, and this actually goes back to a lot of um, a lot of my thoughts around you know the use of monetary policy um, and especially exceptional monetary policy is that this should probably be reserved for very exceptional circumstances. And we have been through a very exceptional circumstance and. Um, therefore alleviating some of the cost of living crisis through that reduction in tax on fuel, I think is a great thing uh, in in a short period of time. Um, I I suspect that that money, that hole that that creates, that that revenue from the government um, will create a hole that um, we wouldn't want to be Filled in other ways, uh, and so that that spent. What I'm saying is that that spending's um, going to be used, hopefully, for, for for good. I wouldn't want that to disappear over the long period of time. Um, but I think in the short term, it's probably the right. These are the right types of things to be doing. And you're dead right. I certainly don't agree with the um, uh, with with kind of um, setting or, or fixing of energy prices because I think that creates. Over time, I'm a bit of a free market economist, and I think that uh, demand and supply should largely be left to its own devices to set prices. And I think fixing things like energy prices just essentially creates that mismatch between demand and supply to actually get even greater. Um, High prices should simply be the solution to high prices, i.e. high prices bring down demand People consume less of it because it costs more, and suppliers supply more of it because they can make uneconomic profits from it.
0: One of the other things the RBNZ um, does, or the other key thing apart from inflation and its monetary policy, is supporting maximum sustainable employment. Um, that is an is obviously an interesting one at the moment because they're saying that um, employment is is beyond the maximum sustainable level. It's a bit of a vague concept. Um, What's your take on whether that should actually even be something they target? Um, And also, you know, I guess taking this on a little bit further, is there no better way to rein in inflation than aggressively increase interest rates, deliberately engineering a recession and, and, and therefore increasing unemployment? I mean, in 2022, is there a better way we could be doing this?
1: Yeah, so on that point of maximum sustainable employment, I'm an economist by training uh, as well, and it confuses the heck out of me, to be honest. Um, that's a concept that is, is pretty convoluted, and I know that was actually even asked of them in the press conference afterwards, and I get the feeling that it's very, very nuanced, the explanation around what that truly means. But maybe just taking a bit of a step back and you go, well, okay, what could that mean? That could mean that there's essentially more jobs being undertaken than there are People, or at least people in, uh, of, 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 um, of age that can um, perform that job. So that means that there's, what, people doing two jobs or more? Uh, what does that mean for the strength of the economy? On the face of it, that doesn't look to me like an economy that is booming. That looks to me like a consumer, a household that is struggling to make ends meet and is having to take on multiple jobs um, and what happens if one, of the, what, what if one of those jobs goes away? Um, that doesn't feel like a great outcome for, for those households. And so using that as cover, i.e. we've got too much employment and therefore we can drive the economy into recession to get on top of inflation, it seems a little tenuous to me. Um, I, I do firmly believe that um, higher interest rates were absolutely needed um, but using this maximum sustainable employment metric um, is one that I, I miss. I, maybe I'm just not smart enough to figure this out, but um, for me, it doesn't seem like uh, a, a good reason to want to um, drag the economy into recession next year.
0: The labour market is a really, really interesting topic at the moment too, because um, you know it's very tight. Obviously, it's been massively disrupted by... Covid nineteen, you know, we we had we had lockdowns, we had all sorts of restrictions. We didn't have much international travel going on. We've had no immigration, um, but it's not just a New Zealand issue. I mean, you've recently just been in Australia as we were talking before we started r- recording. Um, I just wonder has Covid disrupted the global labour market? to an extent that we don't fully understand yet. And how do we factor that into all of this?
1: Undoubtedly. And that is, again, just the difficulty setting, again, you know, things like interest rates, um, looking in the rear-vision mirror um, for an economy that's, you know, 6, 12, 18 months in the future. That is, it, it is, it, it, you know, is an exercise fraught with danger. And the really, this is the word that's been most, I think, overused uh, since the pandemic uh, hit, was unprecedented. We truly are in these sorts of times, right? And the labour market in particular is one that is extremely distorted uh, because of what's happened. And so um, that just makes it even more difficult to, um, you know, make monetary policy decisions when the labour market is such a huge uh, driver of both economic growth and consumption in an economy. So, yeah, short answer is extremely uncertain and uh, makes it very, very difficult.
0: Look, that's great, David. I think I've just got one more question I'm going to th- throw at you. So let's just pretend that, um, you know, Adrian Orr um, leaves his job over summer and you replace him. Um, <laughs> and you're sitting there in, in February um, as the governor of the Reserve Bank. What would you look to do inheriting the current situation?
1: Uh, So maybe if if Adrian's listening, I don't want your job, Um, (laughs) just to be very clear. Um, But what would I do if if I had that very difficult job? Um, Well, Again, there's going to be a lot of water to cross under the bridge between now and then. Uh, I suspect, again, because of uh, the impact that not only the changes in interest rates have had, but also you know the um, uh, you know the outlook for inflation and how that's an un- uh, unfolding around the world, uh, will probably paint quite a different picture then than it does now. Uh, But I suspect, and and I don't have a a crystal ball, uh, and so uh, really couldn't answer that with a whole lot of conviction. But again, my view goes back down to, um, we've done a lot of work. We've Increased interest rates a long way. They're well above the long-term neutral rate, in my opinion. Um, there is probably a pretty good reason to start to taper back a little bit. See how those long and variable lags of monetary policy are playing out. And this three three-month period is, is is a great one in that sense because again, we will start to see how those previous interest rate hikes are now impacting the economy. So I actually think this is a great time to stop and reflect. And in a way, this forced hiatus is. is is maybe a bit of a blessing for the for the reserve bank
0: well look david thanks for that that's david mcleish head of fixed income at fisher funds management and i'm gareth vaughan of interest.co.nz with another episode of our of interest podcast